Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Scott Hardinieri. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. And did I get the Hardinieri right? Yes. Yes. Perfect. You look like close enough. <laughs> no, it's good. I'm going to read uh, your bio for people who don't know your name yet. And uh, after that, I'll tell a, a little bit about the article I read in The Guardian about you that led me to contact you and, and bring you here. So uh, Scott is a dad, a partner to Becca, and cares deeply about people and God's planet. He's an ordained pastor with the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and received a Master of Divinity and a Diploma in the Art of Spiritual Direction from San Francisco Theological Seminary before moving to Western North Carolina. Scott and his family served in the vulnerable cloud forests of Monteverde, Costa Rica. Scott continues to become aware of the deep connections among pollution, poverty, violence, racism, mental health, oppression, climate change, and spirituality. Through his work with the Green Chalice and previously with the Creation Carolines, he has supported congregations and individuals as they care for people on the planet. And I want to get in, I haven't finished reading the bio, but I'm very interested. I think that most people see a gap or a contradiction in some of the things you work on. And the listeners can't see this, but you're like, yes, I'm aware of that. It's, mm-hmm. But I don't think that you see that gap at all. So just finishing this out, uh, he currently serves as the director of Bethany Congregations, a ministry accompanying congregations through transformative seasons. And the headline to the article in The Guardian said, within minutes, I was weeping. That's a quote. The U.S. pastor using scripture to mobilize climate action. And it starts off by pointing out religious leaders who know how to relate to communities on an emotional level, maybe best positioned to convince people to support climate activism. I agree with that. And I've, when I started what I'm, my work, I didn't really think of connecting with people in religion at all. It seemed, if anything, I thought it was something on the side, but a lot of people think it was the problem. And I don't think that at all anymore. So for you, well, I want to get to the contradiction, but I wonder if you could, could you share with us what you're doing beyond what, what I read in the bio? Yes. Well, I, I think it, I'm in this liminal season, uh, kind of a threshold moment between this urgency of work with Creation Care Alliance and with Green Chalice, the two kind of sustainability jobs that I've had. Uh, working with faith communities to encourage and accompany congregations in their creation care work or their climate change work. And in that super busy work that I was doing, and now I'm not doing that same work with Creation Care Alliance anymore. I'm moving into uh, this, this kind of new entrepreneurial dynamic around congregational support. And so that's the Bethany congregations work that you read at the last sentence of that bio Mm-hmm. Uh, where I'm going to be accompanying congregations uh, for a couple of years with a team of people uh, listening together how the Spirit of God and, and their own uh, strengths, capacities, uh, resources, and watershed, like their location, how that might encourage them to engage in particular challenging moments. And for right now, this first cohort will be exploring uh, racial equity and anti-racism work. And there's a lot of congregations doing that work already in the U.S. and and so we'll we'll pull together ten of those congregations and and see how we might make space for them to to listen deeply and act boldly. This transition that you're describing, I think you were describing your personal change or tr- uh, transition, but I feel like that that's a transition that is not you're part of something big there. You you would know better than I. Is that right that there's a a lot of people making this transition or communities? I mean, I think there's a there's a sense that that's I think part of the way that we might uh, address climate change and just general overconsumption 
is mm-hmm. to step back. And so I'm in this space where I'm listening. It's uncomfortable. I am paying attention to how much time I have or don't have in new ways. And I do think that communities and individuals as, as a whole um, have an opportunity to do that in order to address climate change. Because I think consumption and compulsivity are part of the problems for us. We, we don't allow time for us to, to listen more deeply to one another, to creation and to ourselves and for those of us that, um, and, for, and to God. And, and starting with God for the faith communities that I work with. This resonates with me a lot that I think most people approach this uh, environment, environmental issues as technological innovation, the solution in, in markets. If we just let the markets distribute resources, then it'll go to innovation and that'll solve the problem. And I see systemically that seems to have been a lot of the causes of, of things. And what I don't see, but elsewhere, I heard in you, but and I, I feel like this is where I've come, is it's our emotions, our, our deep values are bringing about the problems. And if we don't change our value, if, if I could snap my fingers and restore all the pollution levels to pre-industrial, but we kept our values, uh, not, uh, not, not our deepest values. I think, I think we have in us stewardship, but I think the main, the, the main values that we see out in the world, overconsumption, uh, what was the word you used? Compulsivity. I, I tend to use the word craving, if that's close enough. Mm-hmm. And leading to entitlement, spoiled, taking things for granted, that if we take for granted and don't steward, they won't be around and we won't get the, ben- get the benefits. Not that forests exist for us to benefit from them, but we certainly do get the benefits of them in wildlife diversity and things like that. That seems like an, that seems now, I guess, to me natural, but it's, it's maybe not so natural to everyone else. They don't look at our values and where these things come from. Is that what you're working on? Is Yes, yes, definitely. And I think that the, um, I was, I was with a professor at Duke, Norman Wiersba, and he was talking about this idea of escape. And that's, it's a similar way, like what you just said, like if we could go down to pre-industrial levels of carbon, all of a sudden, magically, would we be okay? And I think you were saying, no, because we, are, we have values that are incongruent with a sustainable planet, you know, and with sustainable relationships. And he was suggesting a similar thing, only thinking futuristically, like that faith communities at our some theologies would say we, we're ready to escape. Like we want to go to heaven or we want to be at a, at a later time, we're going to be in a different place. And so it might devalue uh, the right here and now, and it might devalue the beauty of creation here um, in order to be somewhere else. So that, that's a kind of theological move. The same thing can happen technologically, like what you're talking about, which is we're going to go to Mars and, and we're going to succeed in Mars. And Norman and this is what I heard him say. I don't know if you, if it's a quote, but he would say, well, in both of those scenarios, theology and scientifically, humans still go. Like, <laughs> we're still taking people with us to Mars. And in heaven, they're still populated by spirits. And so this, of, of people. And so this, this sense of, uh, we still have a lot of work to do interiorly as we're doing this work with solar and energy efficiency and veganism and all those pieces too, um, it's the both and. So I, yeah, I think I think what you're um, suggesting is right on that we have a values question. And just to take one once another wise uh, elder in this work is uh, Gus Speth, who you may have heard of. He's a climate scientist, and he uh, describes his understanding of the big challenges of ecological devastation and species extinction and climate change being 
what he thought were the biggest problems. And I don't have the exact quote, but what he came to was that selfishness, greed, and maybe isolation were the, the main problems of our, of our planet. And that social and spiritual transformation were needed for the ecological crisis. And that scientists generally don't know how to do that work. And so I, I talk about that quote when I'm talking with congregations because that is the work of faith communities, of, of almost any faith, is to, to accompany people and communities to this spiritual and social transformation. And so we have that opportunity to, to talk values um, with people, whether they're corporate uh, executives or, uh, or any other uh, person from walk of life there. You make me think of a recent guest I had on the podcast uh, who's a professor at UC San Diego. He does a podcast called, or sorry, a blog called Do the Math, where he does the math and like figures out, you know, does solar work, does fusion work? Can we put a giant satellite in space with solar panels that beams by laser energy to the earth? And one of the things I love most, and he's compiled all of this, all of this into a book, which is tremendous. And as well as he knows the physics and the science, he recognizes that that gives you the numbers it lets you understand what the situation is and what the patterns are, but the decisions are based on our values, which that merely informs. And I think the people who understand the technology and the science and the math the best, I think recognize it, it gets you from one place to another, but doesn't give you, it's like, I, I guess I think of it like um, Euclid's geometry. There are five axioms that you start with. From there, you can get everything else, but it doesn't give you the axioms. You have to start with that. And mathematics won't give you the axioms. And I say this as a PhD in physics. Like I, I love science. It doesn't tell me my values. It merely helps me make decisions knowledgeably based on those values. When you work with people to, I, I presume you, is it that you bring people more in touch with their values to, to think of where they're coming from and to live them more? I mean, how do you work with your congregations? So the, the ways that I have found this work to be is to, is to, to invite uh, congregations to listen more deeply to start with. And as a community, we will do practice, whether it's um, that I'm preaching or teaching or something with them, but we'll oftentimes do a little uh, meditation on a time they've been in nature when they've been in awe or um, where they've experienced mystery or fear or excitement. And so for some people, that's called a God moment like where they've experienced this little thin place between the the sacred and the the ordinary. And that as a beginning place will allow for stories to emerge from people's lives. And where they have the opportunity to share those stories in Zoom breakout rooms or in fellowship halls or worship centers, where they they tell of these sacred moments. And that's uh, people from all walks of political spectrum have shared stories of, of these moments. And so that gives us common language. And it also, I think you even said in a past conversation that when people are sharing memories that are positive, they experience some of the same feelings of, of that past event. So whether it was in 1943 and they were at the river with their, their grandfather, or whether it was just yesterday and they're in the backyard with birds singing, they're transfixed or trans uh, connected to these emotions and this kind of spiritual connection. So that that's a beginning place to, to find common values that, well, isn't this a place where we can find connection? And then, and then the stories are, or another vehicle for the values, like you're saying. 
so that's that's a beginning place. Yes. So I got I'll let you direct me from there. But yeah, that's that's kind of the one kind of basic entry level of how how I work with congregations. And are they very welcome? Is it something that you bring to them that they're not knowing what's to come, or are you working with them? Did they invite you to to bring that, or are you? Is this new territory for for the church? Um, I mean, certainly we're in new territory for humankind in terms of the planetary situation, right? And I I don't know that I'm I'm not the best in one particular area. Like as far as like I think of trailheads on this path, and uh, that there are a variety of trailheads that some of them are 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 entering in at a PhD level. And they are ready to rock and roll. They know the climate uh, science and it's dire and that, that we should have been doing something 30 years ago. And so those congregations are often leading me. And so I'm just accompanying them, supporting them, connecting other congregations to see their stories and, uh, and then supporting them any way I can, just holding on for dear life as they, as they move forward quickly. And then there are other congregations that one person watches a, a Catherine Hayhoe video or a, uh, you know, reads a book and they get nervous and they get fired up about how this might connect to their faith. And so then from that, we work with them or we have worked with them to try to find two or three other people in their congregation that might be caring about this. And oftentimes they can, and then you build a small team. And so uh, with that, like finding uh, other leaders within their community that might be willing to have these conversations. So your question was, are they welcoming or not welcoming? And I think Typically, we're invited in, or we we provide some knowledge or or service or or information that might be helpful for them. And generally, that once I'm in the, have been in the room, they've they've wanted to hear from me. At least someone wants to hear from me in that group. And the rest of them, I try to level it with that prayer practice. And then after that, I have a few different ways of communicating stories that that can sometimes diffuse the division. Um, sometimes it doesn't, but most of the time, the congregations that we're working with are either leading, they're ahead of me, or they're so ready for help that we're able to support them and connect them with other faith communities. I think a lot of listeners, I hope a lot of listeners of this podcast are people who don't just want to personally act, but also want to lead. And so they're hearing the experience of someone who's doing that. What's your personal experience, the emotions that go through you when you're working with people maybe one occasion or on different occasions, is it hard? Is it grating? Is it thrilling? Is it gratifying, frustrating, all of the above, other? Yes. I mean, I think the, you know, a lot of the work that I've done is with pastors, with clergy people. And so I have a deep compassion for the work that, that pastors are doing, clergy people of, of several different faiths. And so that is mostly empathy, compassion, accompaniment relating to the to the challenge that they that they generally face of communicating and caring for communicating the spiritual values, history, theology, and then caring for their community through ongoing challenges, like not only social challenges, but just personal challenges of death and addiction and a divorce and all those pieces that, that are, that are facing our clergy people. So when I think about climate change, some people may say, how come that pastor hasn't signed on to a letter? How come that pastor hasn't been out uh, protesting this, this pipeline? And I, I think, how come we haven't accompanied them? How come we haven't offered to teach Sunday school for them? How come we haven't shared ideas for sermons if they wanted it? How come we haven't given them a list of hymns to sing uh, on Sunday morning? So 
it's less, it's less transactional of like, how do we get them to join the fight and more, how do we accompany one another in this together? And so that's, that's kind of the approach that I have with congregations as well, that they're, um, they tend to be kind of all over the map. Like sometimes they're exhausted. And, and right now during this time of COVID, like they've, they've been having to make hard decisions over and over again for a year and a half. Are we going to meet together? Are we not going to meet together? How do we, you know, stay open and, and all these difficult conversations in the midst of, you know, systemic racism and climate change and, and just ongoing challenges socially. Yeah. I'm trying to, trying to keep to your question. I keep rambling off there a little bit, but leading people is a mix. And I would say that for creation care in general, the audiences that I've been a part of, it's been mostly a real gift, particularly if I'm able to listen first and not try to tell or teach first. So if I'm able to, to listen to what, what they're doing, what they're already up to, and then accompany them in the midst of that. And I have a story to go with that at some point. Well, I want to get that story since you mentioned it, but I also want to comment that what you called rambling, I'm, I welcome. And in particular, I want to call it that the subheadline of the, of the Guardian article that I just read a bit, it, it said, people who relate to communities on an emotional level, and then it said, maybe best position to convince people. And you're not saying convince. They said convince. And I'm hearing connection with community and emotion. And convince to me seems like the opposite. Or if, if that conjures up any emotions, it's usually emotions of defense and, and pushing back and argument. And so you keep hitting on these things that, to me, resonate true, resonate as effective and meaningful and purposeful of, of connecting on community, emotion. You said listening, not talking over or, or you didn't say lecturing, I don't think, but you're not lecturing. And I, you even have a, you have a pulpit, I guess, by which to, you could preach. Actually, what's, that's a verb I don't really use. I'm not sure how that would fit between lecturing, convincing versus leading. And I think a lot of people think leading means convincing, but I, I think you don't mean, you said lead a couple of times and I don't think you mean convincing. Right. Did you go through, as I did, a process of trying to convince and realizing this is really counterproductive before switching or did you come at it for starting with a tradition of being of leading and where does preaching fit into that so i guess i've i've had my personality type is less preaching and i mean I'm preaching meaning in like convincing like i i just haven't had like i'm i'm not looking for a fight like i guess that's that's part of my training and part of my kind of natural is to listen first it worked out it's been working out well for me in in this kind of work and I've been around a lot of people that really have seen the urgency of climate change and want to tell people about it. And they're, they're climate evangelists in that sense that they're, they're preaching the, the news of, of climate change. Evangelism, it means like tell, telling good news or pro- proclaiming good news. So it's not really evangelism in that sense, like climate change is not good news, but the, that, that, that convincing dynamic of this is real, this is real, this is real. And that's, that was kind of, uh, the fire hose I was drinking from when I first came into this work. I was reading all the authors, and I still am reading all the authors that are that are describing our future and really dire to help us understand that this is not just another environmental issue. This is an everybody issue, and so like that's that yes, that is enough for me to be terrified and then to talk about it more often. And to really, but I, the way I would do it is like offer this book, offer this this movie or this podcast or whatever to people, and let those those uh, kind of voices be the things that do the convincing. But as I've gone, I've, I've begun to recognize that that 
the solutions are really the most important part of it. And the fear is, is there and people are going to catch on to that or they're not, but it doesn't fear in itself doesn't always equal um, healthy relationship with the planet or with one another, or with yourself. And so if I plant a tree because I want my children to play in this, in the shade someday, or I want there to be birds that come to my backyard because I think they're pretty, or it's a carbon sink to try to fight climate change, like it's still a tree. And so I guess what I, what I try to listen for is like, what are the best ways to have those common solutions show up? And I don't have to convince somebody that climate change is real. If I can say, these trees are cheap, we're working with this nonprofit, and then I listen. And if, if they think about climate change, then we can talk about carbon sinks. If they think about food for their neighbors, then we can talk about permaculture and, and food access to fruit on a tree. If they think about their children and how their children, well, let's use fruit trees for teaching or, or we could use this as a way to engage. So it's, it's a way of listening to how people might find life. This is similar, to, I think, to your work, which is allowing people and inviting people to follow their passions, not having to convince them of the trouble. I think there's room for that around policy and you know, bigger systemic changes. There has to be the reality check and the truth of what's happening. And then one last piece about that is like there's urgency, particularly for vulnerable congregation, for vulnerable populations that don't allow for the or that are a little bit more challenging in in that like environmental racism and the poor are most impacted by our decisions systemically. How we address those aren't quite as as slow moving. Like we need to support our sisters and brothers that are being flooded out or. Um, don't have clean water to drink uh, more immediately. That's not a, hey, would you rather have clean water or plant a tree and let's discern together, which is a lot of the work that I do with congregations. It's more like these people are dying and um, let's listen to them and find a way to accompany their work. It made me think of, I was just over the weekend at a, uh, I was invited to give a talk and it was hosted at someone's home, almost a mansion. And this was one person, I guess it was a couple. I if they had kids, the kids must have moved out by this point. Huge place. And when you talk about vulnerable communities, offering them support, absolutely necessary, I believe. I couldn't imagine living without that. They're not causing near the pollution that this one family is producing. You know, they're lovely people. I have nothing critical to say about them. And, and if anything, they're acting at, at worst out of ignorance of not really quite realizing. Because when they turn on the air conditioner, they're cooling off this whole house for a couple different people. And the effects on that are, are huge. And so as much as we need to work with people who could use our support, the damage is coming from people who could make very, I was going to say could make very simple decisions, like they could live more simply. But actually, I think for them, the change may feel harder. Although if it resonates with deep convictions that they have, which come not through convincing, ah, see, you believe this, therefore you must do that. That doesn't seem to work very well. You do this. But if we listen... I think there's a step before listening also, of, which probably also comes naturally that you don't even have to say it. I'm not sure. But to behave and communicate in ways to make them feel comfortable sharing those things because it's so many people expect to be judged in this area. It kills me when I hear people, how do I put it? Judging. I mean, here's a great way to get someone not to act. Tell them you're going to judge them on what they do. That'll stop them. Right. Yeah. And faith communities are not exactly, they have a, a history with being judgmental. I mean, like that's, that's one of our issues, right? It's like, uh, you're a sinner or you're, you know, like there's, so it's a, 
it's we have to overcome it in in a lot of ways with our own history of uh, being judgmental about how how we see people in the world. So yeah, and and environmentalists, and when I say environmentalists, like I have been, you know, it, it is it doesn't inspire change in me to feel ashamed all the time uh, by what I'm not doing. And the more I learn, I learn that there's a ton that, that we can do. As as you probably know from the book uh, Drawdown edited by Catherine Wilkinson, there's like a hundred different climate solutions and they, they list those in really beautiful ways. And of those, you know, there's 80 that are happening now and like 20 that they list that are, that are future, but like education of women and girls, that's one of the top 10 climate solutions. Uh, food waste is another climate solution. And so when I look at it on the, on the positive side, it's like, Oh, I could really, I could do a lot around climate change and things that I already like to do or that I, that I love. Or the flip side is I could feel ashamed about a 79 of these because I have no idea what, what it is and I, and I'm not interested in it or I'm not doing it. And so, you know, there's, there's 79 opportunities for someone to make me feel horrible about myself because I'm not a good enough environmentalist. But I think uh, what you're saying is generally when we're approaching faith communities, we don't lead with shame. Like that's been used enough. And, and we try to, it's like solar panels and recycling are the top, you know, like what people want to talk about, but those are not for everybody. And so that's, that's part of the story I was going to tell earlier was I was at this, uh, at the wild goose festival and it's a, just a beautiful coming together of art, spirituality, music, and justice. And uh, this out in the hot springs, North Carolina, about 3000 people come together. They do these workshops and, just a beautiful collection of people. And, and we had the opportunity to do a little workshop around discerning your next step in, in creation care. And one of the uh, participants was saying, she told a story about her congregation. It was Presbyterian. And she said, I, I've created this recycling program and uh, we have a blue trash can and a, a black trash can. And the, the blue one is for the recycling. I have a sign up. It has pictures of all the different things you can recycle. On the other trash can, I have ideas of what you can throw in the trash or what you should throw in the trash. We put it in the bulletin and the newsletter. It's been spoken about in the, in the pulpit for a year and a half after Sunday worship and fellowship hour. I'm constantly putting recycling out of the trash and back and forth reassigning uh, all of this mess. And you could see her as she was telling the story, just getting more and more anxious and frustrated. And she described her congregation as, as people that just didn't care. They just don't care about the environment. And she uh, was, was saying that, that they, she couldn't understand why they would let the earth die, you know, like the sense of like, and so she felt ashamed that she couldn't convince this group of people to do the right thing. Like she was feeling more and more ashamed of herself and then was projecting that too onto this whole community of people who she was feeling like they don't care at all about, about the earth. And what I discovered as I was about to hand her like 58 solutions on this piece of paper was like all these different ways to do creation care that I just given her 57 more ways that she could fail. You Mm -hmm. know, like these are, these are all the other ways that, that the church is not going to step up. And so that was a turning point for me. And that we don't want to give lists of things to do to people. We want to invite them to listen to where, for us, God is already stirring in these in her congregation. It may not have been 
recycling. So like drop recycling for your church, do it at your house, but maybe they love to do children's education and you could do a nature-based children's vacation Bible school is what they call it. So that would be one way. And, and so lean into that. You love music, your congregation loves music. Okay, what if they sang two hymns a month that included creation care work? Like start there. And so then beginning with what's already moving and shaking in your congregation allows for that, for the shame to kind of dissipate because you're already doing what you love. Just add a little bit more, listen a little bit more deeply. And what has happened, what we've seen over the past few years is that congregations will, it's not enough. So the hymns is where you begin. But then eventually that group that's like thinking about creation care stuff, they, they see with new eyes. They're like, okay, what else can we do? We have all this lawn out there. What can we do with this lawn? And they begin to dream together. And, uh, and so that's, that's, a, that's a way of, of, uh, of discerning uh, that allows for, it's not convincing. It's really just, it's a, it's a kind of deep listening within a community. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I wish I'd heard this story a few years ago. It would have saved me a lot of running into, like everything I've learned has been like just by doing it wrong and then doing it, not wrong, ineffectively, and just provoking debate and getting people to show how, you know, people who are the most polluting saying how, actually, I'm one of the good guys. And and listening and, and connecting with what's already there, much more effective and much more fun. It's pretty fun. Can we practice the, the can I show you the technique that, that I was describing before? Yeah, yeah. So, and I think it's going to overlap a lot. And I formalized it a bit. So I take it for granted. I, I take it the environment is something that matters to you. I would start with that. Yes. Uh, when you act on it, what motivates you? And I don't mean what are your goals in terms of cleaning things up or influencing others, but what do you think about? Like, what is an environment that you're looking for? What, where does it come from? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for me, it comes from connection. I think connection from, with other people, like when I've experienced nature with others. Uh, but then also, I've had my most kind of solid actually behind me is, the, is Joshua Tree uh, National Park. So the listeners can, he's indicating a, a photograph. It's a beautiful sunset with, Silhouettes of trees. Yeah. So Joshua Tree. So there's, uh, I've had these kind of moments of love listening in nature. That was a full day, 24 hours in nature. And so I've had a clearer sense of myself when I'm in, in nature. And so I guess part of it is, is um, being true to me. And, and I think that, that that's part of what I'm called to do is just be true to me to listen most deeply to myself and then also to be in, in good relationship with other people and with, with trees and the planet. So I guess relationship would be a word. So relationships, true to yourself, clarity. You mentioned that experience. I wonder if you could describe what was it like? I mean, not all 24 hours, but 
what were some sights and sounds and smells, if you remember them? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it was it was part of a, a rite of passage, um, wilderness rites of passage experiences. So this was a a practice day. We we actually went out for four nights and four days in the Anza Brega Desert in Southern California, and uh, and and there's fasting involved and and uh, and stepping out of our comfort zone. And uh, in a, in a lot of ways, and so for me, what I confronted in the midst of that was that I, number one, felt like I wasn't doing it right, whatever I was doing. So yeah, all I was doing was sitting around in the desert, like I didn't have to do anything, but I felt like I wasn't spiritual enough, or I wasn't, I hadn't fasted well enough, or that I, um, and so like I was just confronting this this deep sense of of um, of failure, even with doing nothing, you know, like so that was. That was one of the kind of the 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 brokennesses that I that I that I danced with a little bit. Um, another was um, later on a deep sense of of um, of of understanding my value um, with without producing anything, without um, consuming really anything. Um, that I still had this sense of, of being loved. Like that's, that's the way I would say it, um, by others, you know, from my memories and from experiences that I've had, but then also by this kind of presence that I couldn't quite articulate in the moment. But, um, and then the other was just like that truth to yourself was, um, and, and this isn't, I'm not, none of these ideas are started with me. It was just, these are things that happened to me while I was there. One was, uh, this kind of third one was that I realized that I, uh, that I could just be me and that was enough. And so like this cactus or the rocks that I encountered or the owl or some of the other creatures weren't trying to be anything other than what they were than what they were. And so I, that it enabled me to step to just sometimes lower the mask to say, I'm just going to, all I'm called to be is just me. And I don't even, I'm still working what that means. Uh, but so often I try to be someone or something else and I, and the teacher of the, of the rock and the plant and the owl were to say, I'm, I'm not trying to be a coyote over here. I'm just a tree. <laughs> and so that was, that was a learning for me. It sounds kind of, you know, out there, but it was, it was powerful for me to help me, uh, try to be true to myself, uh, moving forward. So, and I, I keep going back to, I mean, that was still, that was, um, you know, a couple of decades ago, and I'm still go back to that, those four days as, as really formational for me, four days out of 20 years. And four days of simply nature. There was no, like, no one prepared it for you. And the insights that you got or the self-sufficiency that was, that you acquired, I'm not sure if I'm using the right words. It, it was always there. And if you're feeling like failure, even doing nothing before, I, I suspect you're saying something a bit about society that grew up and expected things of you that when released, gave you that clarity, gave you that freedom, if that's the right word, self-awareness, if that's, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. And I can't, but you know, for most of human history, we had access to that all the time. It was, it was the default state, I would, I would guess. I mean, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if the listeners can hear, there's like a helicopter going overhead. It's like, I can't, get away from that. And 
for thousands of years of people getting away from that led to now there's no place to get away. I mean, it's very difficult to find a place to be, to, to get that experience that you had 20 years ago. I, I wonder if 20 years ago, if now there would be more human noise mm-hmm. that in the exact spots where you were. Right. Yes. So given this experience and these feelings, I invite you at your option to think of something to do, to act on those feelings, those experiences, that those values, that something that you're not already doing, something that, that you do yourself, not lead others to do or ask others to do, and something that has some physical component, not just reading or learning more, by all means, read and learn more if you want, but take that and the step to action. And it's not about changing the world. That may happen, but the goal is to act on what matters to you in the, to these personal values of yours. And most people at this stage, they start reviewing what they currently do. And most people think, well, what more can I do? But usually, you know, there's a bit of back and forth that happens. Or sometimes people right off the bat are like, oh, you know, I've been meaning to do X for a while. Uh, would you care to accept the invitation and, and think of something that you could do? Yes. Does anything have to mind yet or talk it out a bit? Well, I mean, I think being in nature is the one, is one that, that comes to mind. And I'm trying to think of what would be, you know, and again, there's this dance between productivity and like, I want it to be hard enough to where I, I earn the, you know, the, I do it, but then also like, I want it to be doable enough to where I actually will do it. And it's not like such a, you know, it's such a challenge that I won't even do it. So that's, I know that's what you're inviting people to explore. Yeah. And the, there's no constraint that it must be difficult. There's no difficult enough. Mm -hmm. There's no hard enough. There's no easy enough. It's yeah. You pick that up. Yeah. So I guess the, I mean, I think you know, having a goal of, you know, even five minutes a day, my hunch is it would grow like that five minutes wouldn't be enough. But even just being outside in my backyard, there's several large trees and we have several birds that come in and out. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by the different bird songs that have been happening. And so, you know, typically that's happening while I'm just like getting my coffee or kind of running around, I can hear them out there, but just I think stepping out and either just sitting out there, like uh, pulling a chair out or even just laying down on my back porch and, and listening, like doing that practice. And I would say five times a week (laughs) would be manageable. Like five minutes for five times, like five times, five minutes a week would be, you know, so the weekend might be different or maybe I miss a day because it's pouring down and I'm too wimpy or whatever it is, but that seems super manageable. And I think that would help in a lot of other, not just for my connection to nature, but just like my own spirit to, to make space to be unproductive. I can't help but digress here or comment on something that, that uh, people keep inspiring me back when I do these things. And I had someone on, oh no, this was just a conversation, not recorded, but it was a high level person at the United Nations. And she's a bird watcher and we we're talking about birds. And I've just been down because there aren't as many birds around here as there used to be. And that's, and there weren't that many when I got here in New York city and she started talking about bird watching. And I was like, yeah, there's almost no birds around. She's like, are you kidding right now in central park? There's all the, and she starts listening to all these birds. And I go to the park every day to pick up litter. So the next time, I mean, literally the next thing I do after talking to her, is I go to the park and I see someone getting out the binoculars. I'm like, she told me that there's bird watchers everywhere. And like, I see a whole bunch of bird watchers that I never would have noticed otherwise. Awesome. So back to us. So thank you for uh, reminding me of that, of that fun experience. So, can we also combine it with something where in, while you're doing that, maybe are you not doing something that would have been power, would have been polluting? Because so far, you're not changing the world. Uh, not, right. not that that's the goal, but uh, to have some component. So a lot of people, they say, if I would have watched TV and I do this instead, if the TV's off, then they're saving power. Would this be like a power off activity? 
that might have been a power on otherwise with that time? Yeah, I mean, I think I probably wouldn't be using electronics that much, but I mean, I could, I mean, it definitely there's that. Yeah, I mean, I think we could, I mean, we could count that for sure. Like, less, I wouldn't be on Facebook or Instagram or, or any kind of social media stuff or computers or phones. So that would be a plus. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think of others ways for it to impact. I I mean, I guess I'm just hoping that and trusting that if I can start with five, then the compulsivity of all, all the rest of the day will be diminished. If that makes sense. So like, I'm going to be less inclined to comfort myself with my phone or with a donut or with, you know, with whatever those things are that are, that I'm trained to react to it by buying or consuming. Okay. I have to tell you about a thought process that went, as you said that, I thought you were going to say, I trust that I'll do more after this. Like I'll continue the activity, which, and to which I would have said, I virtually guarantee it, but you went in a different direction, which says that after you'll come back in, your day will be different than it would have been otherwise. So now I want to make sure that when, if you come back a second time, which I invite you to, to share how that went, I'm going to have to make sure to ask, was there an effect after that? And I bet you won't take my bet if I bet that, that we know where that's going to go. We can't say for sure. Mm-hmm. So the next step is I make it a smart goal, which we've already done, which is specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. Oh no, the time-bound. So you said five times a week for five minutes each. About how long do you think it would be if you came back to share how this went? How many weeks or months or however long, if I asked you, how did it go that you'd be able to say, this is how it went? I mean, the summer is just going to be wild. So I think I don't want to just base it on the summer. So uh, with kids out of school and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe October. Is that normal? Or are you thinking maybe just like do six weeks and then we... I've had everything from... I've had guests do year-long ones and I've had guests do several-day things. So months to weeks is the sweet spot where a lot of people come back with. Okay. And I'm kind of curious because that implies to me that there's going to be birdsong evolution of mm-hmm. the different, I don't know what birds are going to come through there, seasonality. So I look forward to the richness of, of what comes out of it. Yeah, that'd be good. And I'm partly curious to hear, because I think, I suspect that as we were talking, you might've been comparing how I'm doing it with how you do it. And I'm also, because certainly when I was listening to you, I was thinking, oh, what can I learn from him? How can I improve my technique? And how can I learn? And I definitely want to ask, when we come back the second time, I'll ask about how it went and, and questions about that. And I'll be curious how that compares and contrasts with what you do. It's probably too soon to ask now, but did, were you also thinking like, oh, this is similar, different than, to what I do? I being you? Um, whenever I invite congregations to do stuff? Yeah. Yeah, there, there is definitely a similarity. I mean, it's very, it is like we do a, like a discernment practice or kind of a, a what, what you've been asking, kind of personal connecting into the world. And then I don't know, I need to get the acronym, the SMART acronym again. But um, yeah, that's, that's very similar to what we do with whole communities to help them, help them move a little. I'll be very interested if you, if you come back with like, hey, Josh, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Mm-hmm. Did you realize when this happens, that happens? Yeah. Learning from people who have experience works pretty well. So it seems to be more effective than just, well, trial and error works too. Yeah. Well, so I want to pick up next time where we are now, but I also want to make sure, did, did, are the things I didn't think to ask that are worth bringing up or things that you want to say to the listeners? Um, remind me of the SMART acronym again. It's 
there's different ones, but I, the one I use is specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time bound. And you know, it's no, there's no, I don't think there's like scientific evidence that like that particular five really works. But for me, what that means is the first two things that I do: what does the environment mean to you? And to let the person share and to ask confirming, clarifying questions so that something comes out that, that's inside them. Then I inviting them at their option to think of something to do to act on that with certain constraints. That I think of as leadership. It's it's about emotions, it's about images, it's about stories, it's about them. The smart goal is transitioning into management. If I just had, you know, can you think of something to do? If someone says, yeah, I'll eat less meat, that's a lot harder than I'll have one less meal with meat in it per week for three months. That's mm-hmm. much more achievable. So smart goal by making it specific, making time out, it, it seems to, it sounds like a constraint, but it actually, and it is, but it makes things easier for the, the doer, mm-hmm. I find. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I can't think of any other major pieces now. I mean, I, I've, I've been really grateful for this conversation for sure. So I'm happy to keep talking, but I can't think of anything that you haven't asked that would be really important for people, except that I think one of the reasons why you, I guess I do have one now. So um, one of the reasons why you invited uh, me and people of faith is just like this, this um, combination that you're seeing around compassion, listening, and kind of measurable goals like the science and kind of spirit blend. And I think we are at a time when people are, are reaching both of great division of course in the U S but also newfound partnerships and, and opportunities for collaboration. And I think that's um, where I'm finding a lot of hope is that, that people are turning toward one another with data and meditation and, and listening and science um, in ways that are, that are enlivening of, of, all, of all aspects of our lives with wonder being kind of at the root of, of, of many of these pieces too, wonder and, and awe. So thank you. I'll say you're welcome because you said thank you, but I, I should be thanking you. I, I'm thanking you. And I, I can't help but comment that a contrast that I'm feeling, I feel this more and more, that when I speak to the mainstream traditional environmentalists, there's a lot of like, here are the facts. We have to do this. And I can't argue with them. But if I think of the emotions coming from it, it's much more about uh, certainly facts and figures, certainly, but more of like imposition. And there's a, a story I read recently. It was like some UN figure said, older people have to sacrifice for the next generation. And I think I know what they meant, but sacrifice is like that language is, I don't consider eating vegetables a sacrifice. I don't consider spending time with people with everything turned off a sacrifice. And forget about single person actions, which are very small, you know, divide by 7.8 billion and suddenly it's back to zero. Leading others and working with people and communities and working with lots and lots of people. I mean, I've had on the podcast several mayoral candidates from New York City and, and Congress members and senators, and that's a joy. It's so it's really joyful. And you, I, you, you just said wonder. And so talking with you and people that I think these communities that have traditionally been viewed as not the ones to work with, they're the problem. I don't know if I'm overstating it, but the emotions are much more joyful and. So that's why, like you, you, I was about to say that and you said, thank you. I was like, ah, I was, <laughs> you just, you just reinforced joy in my life. And I'm like, how can you're thanking me? Wonderful. Thank you again. Yes. I think that's, um, that, that combination of like fully embracing the, um, not just the anger and the righteousness of, of like, we need to do something now, 
and that sacrifice, that passion. Um, I think those are all really important parts of the, the conversation, but also deep sadness and, and shame and, and fear, uh, but also gratitude and joy and awe and wonder. And as I've been working with uh, environmentalists and people of faith, like I've, I've noticed that, that there's both this hope that we're going to turn a corner, that there'll be policy shifts, that, that people will come to their senses, and that there's that hope piece there. Uh, but more and more people are, are realizing that that's, like, that's an important goal, uh, but that love, no matter what, like we can't, we can't know what's going to happen, but we can practice love today. So whether, um, whether my grandmother is sick in the hospital, like I can love her. I don't know how it's going to turn out with her life, but I can love her nonetheless. And that's the same in some sense for me around the earth. Like I, I want the earth. I want the birds to continue to flourish. I want the whales to continue. I want our species, the humans to continue to flourish. And, and I'm going to do my work to, to try to make that happen. But in the meantime, what would it be for me to be more loving to myself, to my family, to my neighbors, and, uh, and to trust that first over the hope that we're going to succeed because it's, it's defeat after defeat after defeat when you look at the environmental data. And if I, if I let myself only focus on winning in that way, it's really soul crushing. Um, but if I say, yeah, that's, that's hard and I don't know how that's going to turn out, but in the meantime, I'm going to love and, and, I know, and I don't know exactly how to do that. I'm still practicing to learn how to do that. But with that love comes the joy that you're talking about. I think that sense of, of awe, of wonder, gratitude, peace. I can't think of a better place to close. Scott Hardinieri, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.